Good morning. Let's um, begin with a word of prayer and ask God's help as we seek to understand His Word this morning. Father, we pray that You would help us enlighten our eyes so that we understand Your truth and how to apply it to our lives and our relationships. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you've tried archery, the goal of it is to hit the bullseye. And um, in this lesson, we're going to think about the role of the heart in counseling. And there are lots of different methods that can be used for trying to counsel people, direct people towards the truth of God's Word and towards real change. Uh, But if we don't hit at the center of the target, we've actually not helped the person as as well as we could have. And uh, so first thing we want to see this morning is that the heart is the target of counseling. The heart is the target of counseling. We live in a culture that is uh, very advanced when it comes to counseling methods. And there's all sorts of them listed there for you. Um, This cognitive behavioral counseling, there's uh, therapy, family systems therapy, emotion-focused therapy, object relation therapy, psychoanalysis, solution-focused therapy. So there's all sorts of different counseling models that are out there. And um, so we're not going to go through each of these and evaluate them, but, but just so you know, there's lots of different ways that people aim at trying to get to the center of what the problem is and try to solve the problem. And what I'm going to suggest from the Scriptures is that the heart is at the center of what needs to be done rather than what these offer, which are emotions and and, uh, and the thinking alone or something like that. Each of these counseling models uh, are their own version of anthropology. Anthropology is just the study of. Anytime you see ology, that's just the study of. And then anthro is just the word for man. So anthropos. Um, So the study of man, study of human beings. And so these counseling models are studying people for the the things that they do, the things that they imitate, the way that they act under certain situations. So, for example, the the, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy there is one that focuses on your thought life and argues that everything you do, your emotions and actions, are defined by your thinking. And there is some truth to that. the emotion-focused therapy makes emotion the centerpiece of humanity and argues that everything that you do in life is defined by your emotions. And so these counselors will work hard to get to the center of what they think the problem is by finding out what you're thinking about a situation or finding out how you're feeling about a situation. And um, so... um, they, they believe that if you fix, like for the first example there, the cognitive behavioral therapy, if you fix a person's thinking, then you fix the person. Or if you fix, you know, an emotion-focused uh, counseling, if you fix the person's emotions, then you fix the, the person. And uh, same thing with family system. If you fix the family's interaction and so on, you fix the family. Uh, so each of these counseling models would authoritatively declare that that their particular kind of anthropology is the best way to view humanity and consequently the best way to fixing our daily problems. But I want to suggest to you that secular counseling, these models that are listed for you there, have an imbalanced view of 
humanity, and maybe that's a kind way of saying saying it, we could go as far as saying has an improper view of humanity. As Christians, we want to define our anthropology according to God's Word. So anthropology, don't think anthropology, that's a bad thing, the study of human beings. Because um, we, we, uh, we actually have uh, a section in our systematic theology courses in seminary that's called anthropology, the study of man. But, but we understand man based on uh, our understanding of what the Scriptures say. So, so that's how we want to understand who we are. That's how we want to understand how other people react in certain situations. It's based on God's Word. We want God and His Word to determine the most important factors uh, when it comes to defining and dealing with um, man. So the reason I say that those secular models have an imbalanced approach is something that I've said before, and that is that they always start with the wrong premise. They start with the premise that man is good by nature, and the Scriptures teach us that by nature we are evil, we are wicked, and we have a heart problem. So here's this quote for you at the top of the second page there. Um, this is from John Calvin. He writes, It is certain that man, that man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he has first looked upon God's face and then descends from contemplating Him, God, to scrutinizing Himself. Is that a true statement? Is that accurate according to what the Scriptures say? I heard on, or I read on uh, a Facebook post several months ago, um, someone had said, I can't understand God until I first understand myself. And that's exact, exactly the opposite of what Calvin is saying here. And I think it's exactly the opposite of what the Scriptures teach. That is, we can't understand ourselves uh, properly because we are depraved. And, and, and you realize that depravity is something that, that uh, is in us, that is a part of us from the time that we are conceived. That we are depraved. That we are opposed to God. And even when we are saved, all of the effects of depravity are not removed. Okay, can anybody attest to having sinned this week? <laughs> okay, so, so those effects of depravity still haven't been removed. So there is a possibility, and I would say a probability, uh, uh, we should expect, that, that we are going to have our minds actually interpret things improperly because of how sin affects our whole person. So if we try to understand ourselves apart from understanding God, then we've gone about it the wrong way. And that's exactly how people in our society try to understand God. They first try to understand themselves. If I can kind of you know, uh, self-actualize, kind of get to the top of life and, and self-actualize, then I'll understand who I am and I'll understand who God is. And, and what the Scriptures teach is, no, you need, you need to understand God in order to get a better picture of yourself and who you are. And so... Um, so all of these models that are set up for us in secular counseling ignore what we're going to focus on, and that is the heart. In the Scripture, the heart is very important um, part of biblical anthropology. And this, this is what we use to understand who we are and to understand the role of the human heart. So before we move into the text of Scripture, anybody have any questions so far in this introduction? Any thoughts on, on that? All right, Bill, yes. Please, comment. Well, I was talking about 
Yeah. That's what the member said? Wow. That's, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good, that's a helpful observation um, that we can't ultimately remove the sin from ourselves. I mean, that's, that's why these uh, counselors a lot of times either suppress what's going on or they, they try to, um, you know, cover it up some some way, one way or another with uh, drugs or pulling you out of the situation. problem is when we get removed from a situation that is causing the sin, right? We get removed from the situation, what, what happens? What follows us, even if the circumstances don't? Our heart, right? Our, our sinful heart. So as an unbeliever, we move ourselves out of the situation. Those sins are going to be exposed in some other way, right? It's like uh, Paul Tripp um, says in his DVD, uh, on parenting, he says, you know, there's a if I have a bottle of water here, and you know the water spills out onto the floor, you know there's no cap on the the bottle. But if I have a bottle of water and the water spills out on the floor, could we could make all sorts of questions and say, why is the water spilling out on the floor? Is it because of the bottle? Is it because of what's going on with gravity? We could make all of these things about why there's water spilling on the floor. And his point is, the reason that water's spilling on the floor is because there's water in the bottle. And the same thing is true about our heart. We can, as you know, secular psychologists, we can look at a person and say, well, there's all sorts of reasons why this, you know, this sin is spilling out. And then we try to do different things to cover it up. But the problem is there's sin in our heart, and we can't get away from that, and eventually it's going to come out. So, uh, Ken, do you have? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I think, I think that, yeah, and I, I, I think they have good intentions in mind. They're not trying to, you know, pull the wool over anybody's eyes. I think they're genuinely trying to help people. So I don't want to dismiss all they're doing and say that they're of no value. But, but ultimately, they can't come to the root cause and see genuine change happen. Uh, I would say that it's uh, either manipulated change. That is, it moves to a place where. The person's actually not really uh, solving the root problem, or it's just a covered up kind of change, which is what Bill is suggesting with kind of just moving it. It's kind of a shell game, you know. Just move it over here. So now, see, look under this shell. There's nothing there, but but there's still um, there's still a problem. So I think that'll become clear as we start to look through this a little bit more, and uh, hopefully uh, as we look some of the scripture. So let's turn to Proverbs chapter four. Proverbs chapter 4. We want to define what the heart is because if we're saying that the heart is the target of counseling, then what is the heart? And certainly we could, you know, look up in a dictionary and see that the heart is uh, this, this um, I was going to say muscle. Is it a muscle or, or it's an organ, right? Both. It's an, it's an organ muscle that pumps blood. Okay. 
Okay, we could. We, I should have looked it up in the dictionary, apparently. Um, but but we're talking about something else. We're talking about our spiritual heart. Okay, so let's look at Proverbs chapter four. Would someone read verse twenty-three? Okay, so to sum up the heart in one sentence, the heart is the cent is the central or most or most core part of who we are. It's at the core of who we are. We come to know our uh, a person's deepest struggles, our deepest struggles, by looking at a person's heart. Now, this is certainly not the only text of scripture that talks about the heart. There, there are probably dozens more. But Solomon writes here, above all else, guard your heart because uh, from it flow the springs of life. Just as a spring is a source of water, right? so also is the heart the source from which we receive all of the actions, feelings, thoughts that come into our lives. Everything that, that we do comes as a result of what's in our heart. Solomon wants to protect his son and protect his heart because he knows that his heart is the fountainhead from which life springs forth. And when we talked through um, uh, parenting and things, we talked about the the tendency toward behavioral change, trying to just change the behavior of people, but actually that doesn't uh, of children, but that actually doesn't affect what's going on in their heart. A person could be uh, perfectly conformed on the exteriors, doing all the right things behaviorally, but their heart could be far from God, right? Is that possible? Right. You have the Pharisees, even as adults, who who uh, express that sort of thing. So, so how do we know what is going in on inside of our hearts? What's going on inside of our hearts? How do we know if our hearts are the central part of who we are, if our hearts are the target of counseling, we're trying to help somebody else with looking at their heart and showing them, then how can we how can we know what's going on? Well, the heart can be broken down into, or or we could say it's closely associated with uh, who we are as a person. That is, our mind, will, and emotions. So there are texts here that, that uh, we can look up, but um, uh, for sake of, sake of time, we won't. Turn to Hebrews 4, though. We will look at that one. Hebrews 4. And this is a familiar verse for you, I'm sure. So it could be connected to the heart or, or the uh, the mind believing that with the heart a person believes, and uh, that's the Romans 10 passage. Or it could be connected to the will, deciding and acting. It could be connected to the emotions, like Second Corinthians 2, 4 says. Would someone read Hebrews 4, 12? Okay, so the Word of God pierces all the way to the thoughts and the intentions. So the uh, the thoughts and we could say the feelings, the will of the heart, that it's more than just one thing. So we can't just take the heart and connect a straight line to one part of who we are. 
we connect our heart to really everything. So think of multi-pronged, the heart's at the center. Everything that we do is connected to the heart. How we think, how we choose the will, and how we feel. Our sense of right and wrong is, is based on our heart. Our conscience is based on what we, uh, what our heart is and what it does. So the heart is a central part of who we are. All right, next we want to see that the heart is foundational. Turn to Luke chapter 6. It's foundational for who we are. It's also foundational for for helping out ourselves uh, when it comes to sin issues and helping out others when it comes to their sin issues it is foundational. And here's a very um, basic, not, not um, unimportant, elementary, but basic in that it's very straightforward principle that we learn about the heart. Look at chapter 6 and what someone read verses 43 through 45. Okay, so here's a confirmation of what I have been suggesting from earlier, and that is the way that you speak is based on what is in your heart. Okay, that's the the water in the bottle principle, right? The reason that you're saying things that you're surprised that you that you were saying is because you've already thought of those things in your heart. Those you've already uh, you've already made up your mind as to what those and when something you know quote unquote slips out. Um, it's, it should not be a surprise because look at the last line in verse 45. For his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. Paul Tripp, another good example he gives is when his he was at a, I think it was a wedding reception and um, his uncle got drunk and he said some really inappropriate things about some of his relationships. And, um, and Paul was, at that time, Paul and Ted, uh, who are now both, Christian counselors, uh, they both were kind of young at that time, and they were kind of shocked at what their uncle would say. And and uh, his mom took them both aside and and told them, "Listen, uh, what your uncle said was certainly un- inappropriate, but don't be surprised at what he said because he was just as shocked as as anyone else that he would say something like that." And he said. No one has ever said anything that they hadn't already thought about in their heart. That's what she said to her kids. And, um, you know, we can explain how we speak away. We, we've all said something that we've regretted, and, and we're surprised sometimes at, at us saying that. But, but we don't say anything that, that we haven't already thought in our hearts. And, uh, and that principle is critical to understanding ourselves and to understanding other people. That's what verse 43 teaches us. There is no good tree which produces bad fruit. Paul Tripp, again in that same video, argues that, or he makes the illustration that, that we could go into the backyard and 
we could have a certain kind of tree and it may not be producing the fruit that we want. So we could go out there and grab a, a freshly picked basket of apples, let's say, and a staple gun. And we could staple all those apples to the tree. And people could look at it from a distance and say, that's an apple tree, right? But over time, what's going to happen? The apples start to rot. They fall down from the tree. All right, they're not attached properly. And so the tree is going to be exposed for what kind of tree it is. It's not an apple tree. Okay, uh, trees that aren't apple trees don't produce apples. Okay, pear trees don't produce apples. Um, so, so the point is, is that whatever kind of tree it is, that's what kind of fruit it's going to produce. So there's no good tree that produces bad fruit. There's no bad free tree that bears good fruit. So there's a couple principles that we need to to see here. Luke's not giving us a uh, lesson in botany here, right? He's talking about a principle, or actually his record of Jesus' teaching, Jesus is talking about a, a principle about humanity. So the first principle that we learn is that you can learn a lot about a person by looking at the fruit of his life. So if we're trying to get to the heart of a person, we want to find the center of who they are, then we can find a lot about who they are by looking at their fruit. Look at Jesus' comment in verse 44. Each tree is known by or recognized by its own fruit. If you want to know what kind of tree you have there, then look at the fruit. If you want to know what kind of person you have, then look at what kind of actions they're producing. Good trees don't bear bad fruit. Bad trees don't bear good fruit. No, good trees bear good fruit and bad trees bear bad fruit. In other words, the quality of the fruit is dependent upon the quality of the tree. And so the same thing applies to human beings. You, you, you come to understand a person yourself by looking at, a, at the overall fruit of a person. What kind of fruit is this person producing? It can be a wide variety of things. It could be their choice of words or their thoughts and plans, their feelings, their, their actions their relational interactions, their hopes, their dreams. It could be financial choices, parenting techniques, the quality or state of their marriage. It could be how they react to loss. Uh, it could be the, the confusion that they express, the anger, the joy, lack of discipline, all sorts of things point to what kind of person they are. So what uh, that is, by the way, one of the hardest things to do when you're trying to understand who you are and trying to understand who other people is and how you can help them is to get to the heart because uh, it, it becomes very cloudy and, um, and difficult because often what happens when you talk to a person, they're going to give you lots of information but not necessarily tell you what's at the core of who they are. And so it, it takes some, some work and we'll talk about that here in just a second. So you can learn a lot about a person by looking at the fruit of their life. Secondly, our life is an overflow of our heart. A person's life is an overflow of his heart. Look at verse 45 again. The end of the verse, For his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart, or another translation, For out of the abundance of the, the heart the mouth speaks. What a man says or does is based on what is in his heart, because the heart is the control center 
of who he is, of his entire life. And so, um, as Christians, we're going to see some good fruit. We're going to see some redemptive fruit. But the problem is, again, as we get on this side of, of our salvation, we bring along some of the effects of depravity with us. The, pra- the, the, the full effects of depravity will not be removed from us until when? Okay, until the next life. Wait for somebody to say, until we get to the higher life, right? Until we reach the state of perfection. Good. I'm glad you didn't say that. Um, But not until the next life will the full effects of depravity be removed from us. And that includes the curse that we have in this world of sickness and death and so on. But but not only that, but our, our tendency towards sin, our tendencies towards straying from God. And so... Uh, you could say, well, um, how is it that a good tree could bear some bad fruit? And I think the point that Jesus is making is not that we never do any sin. Obviously, he can't be saying that because no Christian could ever reach that state in this lifetime. His point is that um, that the, the, the pattern of life is that we're producing good fruit. And so on this side of glory, our redeemed hearts are still tainted by sin. And so we will manifest some sinful fruit. But in contrast, do you realize that unregenerate hearts, that is non-Christians, can never bear any good fruit? Even their best acts of righteousness are what? According to Isaiah that we just read. They're filthy rags. They're menstrual cloths. It's literally what, how it translates there. They're, they're of no value to God. They, they are done, even the best acts of charity that you see from an unbeliever is done with a wrong heart. It's done not to please God. It's done uh, to please themselves or for some ulterior motive. So, so Christian, non-Christians, while, while Christians can produce some sinful fruit, unbelievers, non-Christians, can never produce good fruit. And um, so, uh, even in their their best acts of righteousness, they have sinful motives. They ultimately live for themselves. All right, any questions? On the heart, center the foundation. Center of who we are, the foundation for how we understand ourselves and for how we understand other people. Obviously. Uh, in light of what the Scriptures say. Alright, turn to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 21. Can someone read those verses? Alright, so let's think about this in terms of an unbeliever. What kind of treasures are unbelievers storing up for themselves? What's that? Okay, gold. Earthly treasures. Anything going to make it to heaven for unbelievers as far as what they're storing up? No, so, okay, in contrast, uh, we store up what is of most value to us. 
any of our endeavors, even as Christians, our worldly endeavors will not last. They will be eaten up by moths, or they will rust, or they'll be stolen by thieves, or eventually they'll be inherited by someone else. All right? But in contrast, the things that we do for Christ will last. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. So, so Matthew encourages us, or, or Jesus encourages us in, in the Gospel, uh, to invest ourselves in more eternal things. And note the connection here in um, in uh, verse 21 between our treasure and our heart. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What is it that matters to you most? What is it that you value most? If you had everything that you wanted, what would it look like? And And... And with that picture in mind, does God have any any part of that picture? Okay, the, the, do your treasures match up with desires for things that last for eternity, or is it about earthly comforts? Okay, removal of family conflict. It goes on, these aren't necessarily bad things in of themselves. A lot of times we treasure things that are bad. But but sometimes we treasure things that are good, and we'll see that here in just a second. We look at idols. All right. So where our treasure is, that's where our heart will be also. All right. Let's move on to idol factories, and this is taken from John Calvin, who says that the human heart is a factory for idols. It's constantly producing more and more idols. So how would you define an idol? Okay? Anything that takes the place of God. Now, let's think of some examples. What would be an example of an idol? Not necessarily that we have, but any any example of an idol. Okay, money. Car. Okay. A wrong understanding of God. Sure. Family member. Okay, so if it's anything, do you have another one? Yeah, entertainment. So if it's anything that takes the place of God, then it could be any of these things that you just mentioned. It could actually be an idol itself, right? A a graven image, as the Bible would say, that you would set up. Now, most of us, hopefully all of us, would never do something like that. But but we we have different kinds of idols, and, um, and that's what Calvin is saying, is that you could tear down all of the idols that you currently have in your life, and what's going to happen is your heart's going to produce more. It's a factory idols. It just keeps going through uh, producing more and more idols. <clears throat> and um, so this could be anything that takes the place of God. And and again, I, I think the, the ones that you mentioned were good because a lot of these things are good in and of themselves. And they're good gifts from God and ought to be enjoyed because they've been given to us by God. But when we move God out of first place in our life and we put one of these things, one of God's good gifts in front of us, even a family member, even money, right? Then then we've we've moved God out of first place. We've now made that thing, that good thing, an idol. See, everything in life is meant to be enjoyed by God. Obviously not talking about sin there, but everything that God has given to us is meant to be enjoyed by Him. But but it must have its own proper weight and influence in our life. 
And idols are things that have grown to a place where they have too much influence. And that's why uh, often when, when, uh, when I preach and I make application, it's not, it's not a matter of do you love God? Because all of us love God. The, matter is, the, the question is, do we love God to the greatest degree? Is He our primary object of love? Or have we put something else? Has He gotten moved down in the priorities of life to a lower place? And that's why idols are so dangerous because they, they can deceive us into thinking that they can provide something for us that God can't or that God wouldn't do otherwise. And, you know, the satisfaction that I get from and fill in your blank for the idol is better than the satisfaction that I get from God. And so we move him down in in the uh, the scheme of uh, in the, uh, the the order of things that are of most value to us. And so so finding out the idols of the heart is one of the most important things that we can do to to minister to ourselves the scripture and to minister to others to to help encourage them. So a good way to explore that is by using several of these questions. Uh, that, that I've listed here for you. This is to help get at the center. Remember I said it's very difficult to get to a person's core, their center, because there's a lot of information that comes out of a person's mouth and a lot of times it's veiled, right? They're trying to hide something else. And so you have to ask some, some pretty pointed questions and um, sometimes these will help to to be able to evaluate that. So what kind of things do you love and hate? What do you want? What are your desires? What do you crave? What do you seek for? Aim? What are your goals in life? Okay, kind of like what I just asked earlier, if you got everything in your life that you wanted, what would it look like? Okay, and then, you know, some, a lot of times we think of that without even thinking of God and like, wow, I, I didn't even include God in my picture of what I want in life. What makes you tick? Right? What 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 is it that motivates you to action? What makes you get up early in order to to make sure that that's done? What what kind of hopes and delights do you have? What do you fear? Um, how do you organize your life? You know, we we prioritize our life based on what's most important to us, and um, and that that's rightfully so. But is our life prioritized around God and the community of believers that He's um, he's put uh, put us into uh, to be a part of, or is that kind of moved to the periphery because you've got other things that are of more importance? Um, where do you find a refuge? What or in whom do you trust? Whose performance matters? And then instead of what makes you tick, what motivates you? What makes you tick? Right? What kind of things really set you off? What was well, the last time that you really had a heated argument or you really just flew off the handle? What was the circum? What were the circumstances? Right? Was it based on something that is of eternal value, or was it something that is um, just a inconvenience for you, or someone cut you off, or you know a child um, misbehaved, or or you know cut into your nap time? He's getting a little too close to home, so I better move on. Um, <coughs> So we should be we should take these forms of idolatry very seriously. If you're if you're a Christian, you want to purge idolatry, right? So why would we not want to 
to discover what these idols are in our life and turn from them. And yet sometimes our idolatry uh, goes on for years. That, that there are times where we have God at first place, but these idols kind of creep back up into first place in our life and and uh, become the most important thing. And for us to just go, you know what, I'm not going to do that anymore. It's difficult, right? And um, it's, it's a battle that we constantly fight. And if you don't sense a battle going on, then you should be concerned, right? There, there should be a constant battle, a war against your own soul to, for, for who should get first place. That's what, that's what fighting idolatry is all about. All right? Next circumstances uh, versus heart issues. When a person comes to me for counseling, um, I, I usually get a lot of details and facts about their problem. They describe the persons, uh, the people that are involved. They describe their own emotions, the background factors. They describe their interpretation of the situation, what they think needs to be done. They describe their own desires and hopes. They describe why other people do what they do. They describe details about the settings and many other things. And and you found this to be the case when you're talking to other people about their problems as well. That they tell you everything, seemingly everything about the problem, and it's difficult to to find out what exactly is going on. So what we want to do is if we want to get to the heart, we got to not remove all the circumstances and say, I don't want to hear about circumstances. Because circumstances, remember, help reveal what's in the heart. But if we make the circumstances, the target of counseling, like if we find out what their circumstances are, then we can fix their circumstances. Then we've, I think we've missed the mark. And um, I think that's what many counselors do. They're asking basic questions, and we should ask basic questions, but they only get to the circumstances and they don't drive deeper into the heart. And um, we have to recognize that circumstances don't control their situation. In other words, the goal for many is to just change the circumstances. But as I mentioned before, if you take a person with a sinful heart out of a set of circumstances that are troubling them and causing them to sin and move them into another set of circumstances, you're going to find that's not going to change them. It may change their circumstances temporarily. It may reduce the amount of sin that's being committed but it's not going to change that person. So that's why you want to drive at the heart. What we tend to do in our society is to blame the circumstances. You know, So that's why a right here common approach is if I understand their circumstances, I can change them and fix their problems. But ultimately, that doesn't change the situation. Your heart does. So addressing the circumstances can help, but it, it's more of a superficial remedy. It's like putting a Band-Aid on a cancer patient. Okay, That's not going to get to the, the root of their problem. They may have some symptoms that result from their cancer, and they may need some Band-Aids for those kinds of things, but ultimately they need the cancer removed. Right? They need the, the, they need the cancer to stop spreading, or else they will have deeper and, and, um, and worse bouts with sin. So let's think about an example. Um, a lot of uh, parent, parenting techniques in our day say that, say that changing a child's behavior will change the child. Okay, so 
So there's a focus on circumstances. There's a focus on behavior. If we can just change the child's behavior, make them more, you know, presentable, then they're going to be a good child. But I want to argue that their external behavior does not lead to lasting change. If you want to see lasting change in a child, then you need to see their heart change. <coughs> well, just think about it for yourself. Have you ever met a person who is externally conforming to all the rules, but then over time, when their guard was down, they finally had an opportunity to express what they really thought, and and the sin just, you know, flowed out of what they what was in their heart. So so we know people like that. We've met people like that. We've been people like that, right? And and so um, so external behavior isn't the the goal. So for an example, just think about how parents often um, force their kids to say "I'm sorry." I would say this is an example of external conformity. And the bad thing is, is that we're forcing them to to just change their behavior. And after they make an attempt at saying sorry, sorry, what do we say to them? That's not good enough. Say it like you mean it. Right? So what are we telling the kids? Even though both you and I know that you're not serious about saying sorry. We want you to say it with more feeling. We're asking them to conform their behavior. And once they say it well enough, what, they've, what we've taught them to do is become good actors. Now they've, they're all going to be, you know, for their life. They could be buttoned up externally, but their heart hasn't changed. They actually haven't felt sorry for what they've done, the sin that they've committed against a person or against God. And, and, and parents, there's no value in that. And I would say for you as counselors, there's no value in that. A heartless apology means nothing to the offended, nor does it uh, mean anything to the offender. It doesn't help that person. Okay, so let me... Uh, uh, um, obviously, we want to see them transformed. We want their hearts to change and see genuine reconciliation. But we have to recognize we can't force that. Now, there's another side of the, uh, to the argument that I need to get to, but Corey, you have a question. Yep. Right. Yep. Let me, let me see if I can quickly uh, put a bow on this, all right? That doesn't mean that we allow people to act on their feelings and give them, you know, okay, so since you don't like that food, then you can just say what you're feeling. You're over someone else's house and just, just let it rip, you know, whatever you think about that food. Let that, that adult know how bad that food tasted. Okay, the, 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 the opposite of that, so there's two extremes. One is we force kids into a behavior but without trying to affect their heart. The other extreme is what Kevin DeYoung calls in his book, Crazy Busy, kindergarten. Okay, the rule by children kindergarten. It is that, that children have the final say in everything. That, that we just say, well, we don't want you to be you know, we don't want you to be hypocritical in what you're doing so you can just do whatever you want. So that's not what I'm suggesting, that kids shouldn't have rules. Um, that, that even like someone, if someone was addicted to pornography and they kept going back to the same places, as a counselor, I would tell them, stop going to those places. 
and, and see what I'm doing? I'm actually moving them out of their circumstances. But, but ultimately, that's not the final fix. That's what we have to recognize. The final fix is getting at their heart. You see, you're valuing something that has no value and that God is telling you not to value, right? So uh, with children, uh, we, we, can't, we have to recognize we can't force externals, but at the same time, children need boundaries. They need rules. Okay, so, so some things, and that's going to have to be a matter of wisdom as far as, as what you tell them to do. But, um, but the, the one that I was just using as an illustration of something that we try to force on children, the, the apologizing without uh, really meaning it. So um, in other cases, we just we have to um, use wisdom. Um, so, so don't come away from this saying circumstances don't matter. You know how how you're, you know the fact that you keep going back to that same website, you know it doesn't really matter. What really matters is your heart. No, stop going to that website. Maybe you need to have some controls, somebody watching over you, only going on the internet when people are around or something like that. Um, so, so getting them out of their circumstances that are enticing them towards sin uh, is definitely something we need to consider and probably suggest. So we'll talk more about that as we seek to understand um, our own heart and seek to help under, uh, other people help help them as well. Okay, but three, uh, three point, four points of conclusion here. Biblical counseling defines humanity with biblical anthropology. How does God define who man is? That's what we want to do. The heart, according to the Scriptures, is the control center for life. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So when we care for people, we have to understand their hearts. Idolatry compromises our ability to live faithfully and then don't put too much weight on circumstances. Define your life according to your heart. Final thoughts or questions quickly? All right, next week. Jonathan. No. Yeah, Jer- I can, but Jeremiah 17.9 is um, that the heart is deceitfully wicked. And um, help me with that. Deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And who can know it? Okay, the very next verse is that uh, the Lord searches the heart. So the way that we understand our heart as Christians is by finding out what the Lord says about our heart. Okay. Uh, obviously, that verse, verse 9, is speaking of unbelievers. That's the full effects of depravity. No one can know an unbeliever's full, can't fully know an unbeliever's heart. Okay. As, as Christians, now we can start to see our heart more clearly because we're looking in the proper mirror of God's Word. So, yeah, that's a good, good reference to keep in mind as we discuss the heart. Thank you, Jonathan. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for revealing your truth to us. May you enlighten our minds as we consider uh, how we can uh, better be servants of you, how we can store up treasures in heaven, and how we can help others do the same.